Well, I look forward next week to beginning a new study of the Gospel of John with all of you. And we plan to spend the month of December just kind of going through the first half of John chapter 1. So it's going to be a great time. But this morning we have finally come to the end of our study of Joseph. And in this final chapter that Elder Barry read for us, we see forgiveness and faith at work. But first, when you think about a funeral, uh, that's what we see in the first half, half, the first half of chapter 50, the, the vivid description of Jacob's funeral. And so I want us to stop and, and pause for a moment. You know, I was actually looking for uh, another F. Maybe I've been doing this too long now. Uh, Baptist pastors are always trying to alliterate their points, right? So I saw, I saw faith and I saw forgiveness clearly. And I was talking to Chris Treadway and he said, how about a fatality? <laughs> I thought about that. Uh, we certainly see that. Uh, we see a man dying. But, uh, but actually the first half of chapter 50 is this vivid description of a funeral. And so as I thought a little more about it, I thought, you know, there are four reasons for having a funeral that I see pictured here in this text. And so I think it's worthwhile to actually stop and think about funerals for a moment as we consider what Jacob's funeral looked like. And so I, I mentioned four reasons. There are certainly more than that you could come up with. But in this story, I see four reasons for funerals. And the first reason is to grieve. It's, it's to grieve our loss. Now, in, in the life of the Christian, of a Christian who departs from this life, we don't weep for them, right? And when we do grieve, we don't grieve without hope. They are now alive, more alive than they've ever been before. But we grieve for ourselves and for one another as we will, we will miss their presence with us for the remainder of our time on this earth. And so it is a good thing and a right thing to grieve when a loved one dies. And we see Joseph doing that very thing here um, in verse 1. We read, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This was right moments after Jacob died. Remember God promised Jacob years before, don't fear to, to go to Egypt for your son Joseph will close your eyes in death. That's the very thing that we see happen right here. Joseph with his dad, with his brothers. Last week we looked at his, his father's uh, last words, his blessings. And then, and then we see at the very end of chapter 49, his request to be buried uh, in the promised land, in the, in the land of, of Canaan. But now jo Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him. And, and he kissed his, his deceased face. And then we see that Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Now we're going to see here in verse 10 that, that when they got to the land of promise, Joseph, his brothers, and a large assembly of Egyptian nobility mourned there for Jacob for seven days. And so it is clearly a, a good thing and a right thing to grieve when loved ones pass away. In fact, we know this, not only did Joseph grieve his father's death, but Jesus grieved. In John chapter 11, verse 35, 
we actually see the shortest verse in the entire Bible. It's composed of two words, and it describes the grief of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, when he approached the funeral scene of his friend Lazarus. Even though Jesus was going to later raise him from the dead, Jesus had true human emotions, and so we read that Jesus wept. He felt true sorrow of soul when his friend Lazarus died. And so it's good for the soul to weep and to grieve with others. We're we're told in, in verse 15 of Romans chapter 12 that Christians are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so it is a right thing to grieve with loved ones. And there can be a sweetness in the sorrow, um, but to grieve the passing of loved ones. But another reason that I see here in this text for a funeral is to honor the departed. And so let's consider that. Let's look at the honor that you see here in the funeral of Jacob. So we already read that the Egyptians had embalmed Israel in verse 2. Okay, and, and you need to understand that, that, the, that for the, the, in the Egyptian culture, um, the, the preparation of the dead for the afterlife was very valued and important. Now, this is based on superstition and untruth. Uh, they saw the preservation of the body as being essential for the afterlife. Um, we know as Christians, our hope is that one day Christ is going to return and the dead in Christ will rise. He's going to do an act of recreation. All right, so it doesn't matter if you, if you happen to die at sea. Uh, back in the day, they were buried at sea, right? And there were ceremonies for that and wording for that because there was a concern. Well, what's going to happen in the resurrection if my body is completely consumed by the wildlife in the sea, okay, versus bones that remain in the ground? And so, but, but the point for the Christian is that we know God is going to do a work of recreation of bodies patterned after what we see when Jesus rose from the dead, bodies of glory, all right, that's what we have to look forward to, bodies that we'll recognize, but with no more effects of sin, no more brokenness, and frankly, some pretty awesome abilities that stretch beyond what we have right now, okay? But the Egyptians embalmed the dead. Now, not, they didn't do that for everybody. Um, the poor didn't have the financing for it, and so they were simply, their bodies were washed and dried in the sun before they were entombed, okay? Um, you're welcome for the picture, by the way. Those who had a little more money actually had their, their, their bodies packed with salt to try to preserve them before they were entombed. But for those who were rich and powerful, they were embalmed and wrapped up in linen as mummies, and their remains were mummified, and the process for kind of the, 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 the special, the grand special, you know, treatment was 40 days. And so that's what we see Jacob receive here. Now besides honor, there's actually a practical dimension in Joseph's mind for having his father's remains embalmed and mummified. And that is he had a long journey ahead, right? They weren't just going to put him into into the ground right away or into a tomb right away. He had a long journey ahead back to the promised land. But we read here that the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Now that was incredible that the citizens of this land, many of them who didn't even really know Jacob personally, would 
weep for him for 70 days. 72 days were prescribed in Egyptian culture for a pharaoh. So this is just two days shy of the weeping for a pharaoh who died. Now, do you think maybe Joseph had something to do with all that? Most powerful man in the land in terms of the guy who actually ran the show? Well, you bet. Um, clearly, this great honor was because of Joseph. But I think there's this idea here that the Egyptians had come to appreciate the old patriarch as well. He wasn't living in their land as an enemy. Uh, he had become a friend and a light in that land. Well, let's consider what we read about the funeral procession here. So in verse 4 through 6, we see Joseph going to Pharaoh. And so we read, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, I'm about, I'm sorry, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. And so here's what happened in verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Now, I, I count three different categories of people who went on this funeral procession, which was for many days, a, a land journey from Egypt to Canaan to bury Jacob. And so here we read that all the leaders of the land of Egypt accompanied Joseph, as well as Jacob's household. That would be Joseph, his brothers, other relatives minus their small children and their flocks. But also, we read that the military, there was a military procession that accompanied them. We read that there were chariots and, and horsemen, which, which normally would not have been part of funeral processions in Egyptian culture, right? But bear in mind, this procession of, of the, of the uh, leaders of this nation were leaving their nation, and so the mil military went along for their protection. So this was a, a huge uh, group of people. This is not an exaggeration in verse 9 when it says it was a very great company. And so there was great honor uh, in this procession for the old patriarch Jacob. And it is right at funerals to honor the lives of the departed. And, and this is not only for Christians, also for non-Christians, for non-believers who are also image bearers of God, it is right for families and loved ones to honor their memory at funerals. And I, I remember the very first funeral I did uh, after coming on as, as a pastor here at our church. It was literally the first week, my first week on the job. I got a call, and I was requested to officiate a, a small graveside service for a man who I don't think had ever darkened the door of a church. Okay, he, he was not a member of our church. Uh, this was more of an act within our community, uh, an act of, it was really an evangelistic opportunity. And it was a very difficult funeral because the man was not loved. 
uh, by many. In fact, he had left a very, very broken family. He had not spoken to his sons in years. He had not spoken to other family members in years. And, and his, his wife um, was from Thailand. She was about half his age. And she had arrived, um, uh, it was almost a mail order type situation, but when she arrived, he wasn't even there to meet her at the airport. A friend went and picked her up uh, and brought her to him. He was in the ICU because he had literally been in a shootout. No kidding. Several young people had actually tried to bust in his home. He had all these like, um, uh, do not, do not, do not, uh, trespass or like trespassers will be shot kind of signs. And some people had seen it as bring it on. And so he had actually gotten a shootout and had shot and killed one of them and had been shot himself and was in the ICU. So her, she met her husband-to-be in the ICU uh, a couple days after being shot. That's how it started. And so the man was not loved. But when I dug a little bit deeper, I, I found that he had heroically served his country in Korea and in Vietnam. And I asked his sons about it, and they said, um, he wasn't a good father, but he's still our father. So we, we, we do want to come, and we want to honor him. And so it is right for us at funerals to, to honor the lives of the departed. But funerals are a time in which we can grieve and in which we honor the departed, but they're also a time in which we come together with others. And so that's our, our, the third point, if you're, if you're following in the sermon guide, uh, that funerals enable us to come together. And so look at this in verse 10. We read that when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made such a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And so this was truly a cross-cultural funeral. You had Egyptians and Jews coming together to grieve and honor Jacob. And, and such that it was so cross-cultural that it was difficult for the Canaanites who saw this from a distance to even distinguish Jew from Egyptian, such that, that they thought they were just seeing a big group of Egyptians mourning uh, their dead. And then we see here in verse 14 a picture of, 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 of Joseph and his brothers. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So funerals present an opportunity to come together with family members and, and friends who maybe haven't seen each other for a long time to honor and to grieve and to comfort. But it, funerals are a good opportunity for reconciliation. You may have a, a, a loved one or a family member that has been estranged. A funeral is a good time to recognize we share something deeply. We share something deeply, and it's not worth continuing through life with a broken relationship. So we see a picture of Joseph and his brothers journeying together back to their new home of, of Egypt. Funerals are also a time to learn. And that's the last sub-point here under funerals. Um, not only to, to grieve and not only to, to honor and not only to come together, but funerals are a good opportunity for learning, to learn. And so look at verse 12 and, and 13. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. 
For his sons carried him, that would be his remains, to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which, Egypt, which Abraham bought with the field from, sorry, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So you didn't understand, you had this big giant procession make it to the promised land, and then you have this picture of, of Joseph and his brothers going all the way up to the actual sepulcher, right, and, and opening this sepulcher. And, and, and Kent Hughes here just kind of paints the picture here. He writes, the stone was removed by the strong among the twelve. And as they peered in, there they saw the grinning remains of Abraham and his beloved princess Sarah. And their beloved son, Isaac, the laughter of their life. And his, Rebekah, and Jacob's, Leah. And there they reverently interred their father's remains. Now, what, what do you think went through their minds as they walked into that sepulcher? And there they saw the bones, the skeletal remains of the other patriarchs who went before. And as they laid their own mummified father there next to them. It's a time of, of learning. It was a time of reflection. And it is good to learn at a funeral. In fact, we, we learn from the past lives of those that we honor. There may be things about them that you didn't know or that you had forgotten or, or stories. And that's one of the beauties of having a meal with people and reminiscing, people getting up and giving their angle. You learn about lives that have been impacted. We learn from the past lives of those we honor but we also reflect on our lives, the lives that we're living, and we consider our future, right? When they looked at those skeletal remains, I'm sure Joseph and his brothers realized, one day that's going to be me. That's going to be my remains. Where will my soul be? You know, the Bible teaches us that wisdom is found in the house of mourning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1 says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Did you catch that? How can that be? How can a funeral be better than a birthday? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. It is wise to stop and to ponder your own mortality. How are you using your time in light of mortality? When you're there on your deathbed, will you be glad for the hours or for the days that you spent playing video games, do you think? Psalm 90 verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Sometimes I, I look out my window uh, of my office, for which, by the way, I'm very thankful for. Um, I, I'd go crazy on a submarine. There's some people who are, are great at that, but I, I love, I just, my, I need natural light, okay? Uh, sometimes I, but you know what I see when I look out my window? I see, I see beautiful trees, but I see graves. The way my window is situated, I, I see a number of graves. And it doesn't bother me at all. You know what it does? It helps remind me that I need to number my days. One day, 
that's where I'll be. In fact, my mom, years ago when I went off to, to Africa as a young single missionary, she went out and actually bought me a funeral plot out there. So sometimes I think about that, that one day my remains are going to be riding in the ground, probably right outside that window. And what it reminds me is that I should not let a day go to waste. There are times that I get distracted with things that may not be quite as essential, right, to the task, to the mission, to the call that God has given me. I should not allow a day to go to waste. And so funerals are an opportunity to remind us of our own mortality and of what really matters in this life. That God has given us this, this amount of time, this number of days that will determine the eternal future for ourselves and others around us. Are we going to be, um, are we going to be good stewards of the gospel or are we going to keep it under a basket? Funerals are a great opportunity for us to point to Christ, the, the hope of the resurrection, and to point to the purpose of our lives. Paul wrote, the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we've talked a little bit about funerals, and that's the first half of, of Genesis chapter 50, uh, is, is the recounting of a funeral. But here we also see a great story of forgiveness. Forgiveness, verses 15 through 21. In fact, I, I thought about calling this the forgiveness. I, I, had, a, I had a friend in Afghanistan named James from Bangladesh. And, and, and James noted, he learned pretty quickly, that the biggest problem on a macro level of this country was the lack of forgiveness. That was it. The fact that there was bitterness and, and, and people remembered wrongs. And so you could literally have two boys grow up together and be best friends, like friends for life, and, 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 and spend decades playing together and going through life together. And in their 40s, one of them may turn and, and literally stab the other in the back and kill him as a revenge slaying for what one of them did to the other's father to get the honor back. That was considered honorable in the prevailing culture of the land, to, to get honor back through vengeance and revenge and the idea of long memories. And so it wasn't just person against person, it was family against family, and tribe against tribe, and, and centuries-long memories that keep, kept people, um, that, that promoted cycles of violence. And so James looked at all that, and his prayer was that God would teach the Afghan people, he called it the forgiveness. The forgiveness. That's, that's the macro level. But, but on a micro level, I wonder if some of us in here need to learn the forgiveness. Well, let's look at the forgiveness in the life of, of Joseph and his brothers. And we've already seen Joseph forgive his brothers 17 years before, right? 17 years before. But here in verse 15, Joseph's brothers were afraid maybe his memory is long. And, and maybe like in a Pashtun village, Joseph is going to remember, and now that Jacob's out of the way, he's going to take, take care of some business. And so, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, now, I think I do see real guilt 
and repentance here. They, they use words like evil and, and, and sin. They didn't try to, to, to explain it away or, or qualify it or quantify it. However, it's mixed with some deceit as well, right? All this stuff about Jacob, uh, one last request, okay? I, I think they just made that up, right? It's a way to try to, a little manipulation here. And so how did, how did Joseph respond? Did he respond with, with giving it to them, what they deserved? Or even a tongue lashing? We, we read that, that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I'm sure this brought up some painful, painful memories for him. And it might not have only been that. It might have been he was weeping tears of grief, meaning it's been 17 years, brothers. 17 years since I forgave you. And we've done life together. And we've spent time with each other's children. Do you not believe that I forgave you after all these years? That may have been what the the tears were about as well. But we see here that his brothers came and they prostrated themselves before him. And they said, behold, we're your servants. They're casting themselves at his mercy. They had nowhere else to go. He ruled Egypt. Well, here's how he responded. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What we see here is a picture of beautiful forgiveness. And why do you think Joseph was able to forgive a, a truly wicked, horrible wrong? You see, forgiveness is not, is not saying de nada. You know, it's nothing. No big deal, right? You might say de nada to somebody who cuts you off, you know, uh, on the road or something, then later apologizes. Um, you don't say that to, to what happened here, all right? It, it was something. Forgiveness is not, it's not pretending that a wrong wasn't a wrong. What forgiveness is doing is it's, it's, it's removing the right to prosecute for that wrong. It may, it's not a, a non-acknowledgement of the pain, but it's a, re, it's, a, it's a releasing the right to prosecute. Giving grace. So why could Joseph do that? Well, first of all, we see here that he did not want to play God. Now, if you think about it, he could have. He could have. But, but years ago, Joseph had put his own personal vindication in the hands of God. And the Lord had vindicated Joseph. You know, one way that, that we play God, is when we're wronged by people, maybe by setting conditions for forgiveness. You know, they have to confess to everything I have determined that they've done wrong in this conflict in order for me to forgive. Conditions. Well, remember this. You cannot be prosecutor and impartial judge at the same time. You cannot. You do not have that capacity to be a prosecutor and an impartial judge at the same time if you're involved in a conflict over your brother or your sister. And so Joseph did not want to do that, did not want to play God. He had laid this into God's hands years ago. But secondly, and and more deeply, Joseph trusted in God's providence, God's greater purposes. He he believed that God brought good out of evil, such that he could say, as for you, you meant evil against me. He didn't water it down. Your intentions were evil. But God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph's eyes weren't all on him. They were on the greater good. He was confident in God's divine providence. And finally, we see here that he empathized with his brothers. He didn't want to play God. He was confident in providence. And here, he empathizes with his brothers. Now, they were in a vulnerable position. He could see that. And they had little ones that they were concerned about. And he was able to actually enter their situation and experience and, and comfort them. He actually thought about their position above his own. And so with his forgiveness, Joseph points the world to Jesus, who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as he hung on the cross, dying for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him. Joseph points us to Jesus. So if there is one thing that you remember from our study of Joseph, all right, I mean, we've seen a lot of things. God's providence, right? Uh, we've seen all kinds of themes here. The, the promised land, and are, are we living for, for Egypt or for the, the world to come, right? All kinds of themes. But if there's one thing that you remember, I'll sum her up in one word, and that is forgive. Forgive. You know, someone has said that, that bitterness is, is like, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other guy to die or to suffer, right? Forgive. You know, Jesus said that the stakes are high with forgiveness. In fact, Paul made it clear that we're not to be bitter, but we're to forgive. He wrote in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, he said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So forgive. Jesus did say the stakes are high here. In other words, he didn't give the option to the Christian not to forgive. Do you understand that? We don't have the right not to forgive. Here's what Jesus said to the Christian. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let that sink into your hearts because the truth is if you've been walking through life for some time, you're going to struggle to forgive somebody like I have. Jesus does not give us the option to choose unforgiveness. And I'm not going to try to explain away what Jesus said. Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But I will say there is a connection to being forgiven by God and forgiving others. Christians forgive. The mark of a real Christian is a willingness to forgive, even, even to be hurt, wildly hurt, and to forgive. And the mark of a fake Christian, or maybe someone who is self-deceived and who thinks they are a Christian but are not, is a refusal to forgive. And for this reason, Jesus told a parable 
about an unforgiving servant. What it, the, the story goes something like this. And I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the parable. But, but here you had a, a man who owed a king a huge debt. All right, We're talking millions of dollars that he could never repay. And so the king said, that's it. Uh, off to debt or prison. And I'm selling you, your, your household, everything you've got into, into slavery. All right? And, and he just throws himself before the mercy of the king and says, I promise one day I'll pay you back. Please give me more time. And the king has mercy on him and, and forgives him his debt. But then he goes and he finds somebody who, who owes him some money far less in proportion than what he had owed the king. And, he, and the person begs him for mercy and he gives it not, but throws him into debtor's prison. And those who observed were grieved and, and, and went to the king. And I'll let Jesus pick up with the, with the words in verse 32 of the story. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The words of Christ. Sometimes doing so is really hard. Sometimes people have wounded us to a point that it's humanly impossible to forgive from the heart. So how do we do it? How do you forgive someone who's betrayed you? Well, the only way that we can forgive is through faith. And I want to present two aspects of that. Um, but we forgive through faith. There's a theological aspect. We, we forgive others based on our faith, believing that God has forgiven us proportionally, the distance being much greater, right? Much greater. You might think, well, the sin I did against God wasn't as odorous as the sin that he did against me. Oh, really? Uh, so now you're putting yourself in the position of judge to, to determine how that sin felt to, to God, first of all. Secondly, the proportion between God, the distance between God and you is far greater than the distance between you and the, the person who's offended you, okay? Furthermore, we owe God everything. He has ownership rights. We owe him our allegiance. I don't think anyone really owes me allegiance. And so we forgive based on faith in that, believing that we are forgiven, and therefore, we don't have a right not to forgive. But not only theologically, sometimes we need practical help. And so practical, practically, we forgive based on our faith because we have a spirit, the spirit of God within us, who enables us to do superhuman things, things that we could not do on our own. And so forgiveness is tied to faith. Real forgiveness for the Christian is tied to faith. And that's our final point. We see great faith in our story. The same faith that, that, that enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers is the faith that, that, that enabled him to prophesy and give directions about his bones and where he truly belonged. So let's look at verse 22 and look at the faith of Joseph in our story. So after the burial, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mecher, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So God blessed Joseph. He was able to see his grandchildren. 
Now, I haven't yet personally experienced grandchildren. Uh, some of you have. I've enjoyed watching my brother Bill Turner enjoy his granddaughter, all right? Uh, so much so that he had a couple days last week, uh, and, he, and he took off and drove two days up to like northern, um, uh, was it Ohio? Not Ohio. Buffalo, New York, or northern New York, right, driving through like, you know, several feet of snow for two days to see his granddaughter. And we, I, mean, I asked him the question, something about like, hey, you can have some other, uh, you know, your other kids coming in. And what I got from his response was actually, that was irrelevant. What mattered was the granddaughter. In fact, he was counting the success of his mission with how many hours he got with his granddaughter and, and how, frankly, you know, the others wouldn't interfere with that, you know. Um, I think he was happy to see his daughter, maybe. But uh, he, not really. No, Kesson says no. It was his granddaughter, right? And, and so here, and, gran- and grandchildren are blessed. You know, the wilds are experiencing a, a grandchild, right? There's something there, something blessing, a blessing there. And so Joseph was able to experience that. And, and like his father, he actually brought several of his grandchildren into his own uh, blessing of inheritance, okay? And adopted them as his own. But then we see in verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And it doesn't say, but I'm quite sure that the Egyptians had one to do of a funeral for him. All right. Um, note here the similarity of Joseph's request to his father's request. Kind of like a Texan. Bury me, bury my bones in Texas. Right? He says, bury me in the promised land. Jacob had been very specific with his dying breath. We, we see at the end of chapter 49, he, he said, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. You get this idea that his last words, you, you see a piercing eye looking at his sons, do this for me. He'd already made Joseph put his hand under his thigh and swear that it would be done. He'd, he'd, this was actually a request he made twice. You know what? It would have been easy for Joseph to stay in Egypt. He had gotten quite comfortable there. And I'm sure they built quite the memorial for him. I mean, several of you I know have been to Egypt or at least to the British Museum in London, and you've seen some of these structures, right? This is a place mankind will remember me. I'll have the biggest structure in the area. But his dad had had an impact on him. You know, he had spent the last 17 years, Jacob had, mentoring and influencing his son as an adult, reminding him that though he may be the viceroy of Egypt, his, his heart belonged to Yahweh. Joseph might have walked like an Egyptian, but at his heart, he was an Israelite. And, and though, other than Pharaoh, he was the most important, powerful, and respected man in Egypt, Joseph still respected his dad right? This grizzly old nomad, this patriarch. So fathers, you have a responsibility and an opportunity to mentor your children, even, even when they're adults, not just when they're young. 
So point them to Christ. Teach your sons to be men of God. We see that Joseph's request, like his dad's, was indeed full of faith. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says in verse 11, 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Again, he had listened to the counsel, to the mentorship of his dad. And, 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 and though he was content for his bones to remain in Egypt for a while, in faith he looked forward to the exodus, back to the land of promise. He, he recognized that God was indeed going to take his descendants and, and that of his father and turn them into a nation and one day they would end up in the land of promise. And when that day happened, he wanted to make sure that his bones went with him. So have, has your heart made an exodus from the love of this world, this Black Friday weekend? Has your heart made an exodus from love of this world to devotion to the kingdom of God? Do you have faith that this world is not your everlasting home, but that there is a far better place that Christ is preparing for you in his new Eden? We read in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. John 14, 1 through 2, the words of Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. At the same funeral where Jesus wept, he turned to a woman that he loved, to Martha, and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we have been blessed by you, but boy, there's a curse, there's a temptation to love this world too much. Lord, we, we pray that like Joseph, we would have faith to look to the land of promise, Lord, that our heart would not belong here, that we would not see ourselves even as our own, but that we would believe that we're bought with a price, and so we would therefore honor you in our bodies and beyond just our bodies, Lord, with our 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 emotions and our spirits. Father, may we be quick to forgive. May we be quick to love. And may we be quick to look to and share the gospel this Christmas season. Tune our, tune our hearts to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.